Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change. Today, I'm joined by Willie Wilkinson. Wilkinson is an award-winning Asian-American, transgender writer, public health consultant, cultural competency trainer, public speaker, and spoken word performer. He's the author of the book, Born on the Edge of Race and Gender, a voice for cultural competency, which transforms the memoir genre into a cultural competency tool. This poetic, journalistic memoir shines an intersectional beacon on the ambiguity and complexity of mixed heritage, transgender, and disability experience and offers an intimate window into how current legislative and policy battles impact the lives of transgender people. Whether navigating the men's locker room as a stealth trans Houdini, accessing life-saving health care, or appreciating his son's recognition of him as a transformer, Willie illustrates the unique, difficult, and sometimes comical experience of transgender life. He's a recipient of a National Lesbian and Gay Journalist Association Excellence in Writing Award, the Transgender Law Center Vanguard Award, and is recognized as one of Trans 100. As the first Asian and first transgender community health outreach worker providing street-based HIV prevention education and crisis intervention for sex workers and drug abusers, in San Francisco's Tenderloin District, Willie pioneered an outreach model that addressed the unique needs of Asians and Pacific Islanders. He worked on the first large-scale research project on the transgender community and developed the first HIV prevention program for trans men who have sex with other men. He was a key organizer of the API lesbian movement of the 80s and organized the first queer support programs for Asian, transmasculine individuals and people of color on the female-to-male spectrum. Willie launched a healthcare access project at Transgender Law Center, the first program in the nation to address trans health. A dynamic and engaging speaker, Willie Wilkinson earned a master's in public health and community health education from UC Berkeley and a BA in women's studies from UC Santa Cruz. He lives in Oakland, California with his three vibrant young children. Willie, welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today? Good, good. Thank you so much for the invitation. How are you doing? I'm doing great. You know, um, I want to talk about your book in part because 
I liked your book because it was poetic. It was personal. There's part of it that, that's political, but it's also educational. And, you know, it's, they say it's the voice of cultural competency. And since you've written it and it's had time to, like, sort of sit with people and do that, what have you found from in the way that you did it, how it affected your work in the community? Well, um, yeah, well, thank you for that. Thank you so much <laughs> for, for being um, so uh, positive about my book and, you know, always appreciate your good vibes. And, um, you know, I, I would say that, um, you know, I continue to work in the community. I don't think um, – I mean, I guess, you know, some people really have resonated with the the book and, you know, I've heard from young people who have um, really appreciated it and, um, um, you know, but I mean, I keep doing what I do. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. I mean, I, mean I, you know, I, I do a lot of work helping community health organizations, educational institutions, workplaces. Uh, get more uh, knowledge about LGBTQ issues, especially transgender issues, and uh, mm-hmm. develop affirm- uh, trans-affirming services and systems and uh, practices. And so I think that's a lot of the work I do, and so I just continue to do that work. Um, so, I mean, I, I guess, you know, I keep on doing what I do. I, I don't think it's, uh, um, it's changed a lot uh, in terms of what I do or, or how that's impacted my work in the community. Mm-hmm. You know, I recommended your book. I have a friend, um, and her son, Hunter, is a trans, young trans man. And I was telling her about the book because, you know, often people don't know about trans men like they do. Like, you know, our trans sisters are, like, very visible. But I like what I, I told her about your book because not only did it show like sort of you know what all you went through but here was your life you know you've got a family what you're doing in the community what it meant to have your children relate to you and you know she was like she didn't have a lot of material on trans men and you know do you find that trans men are, are coming to you that they recognize it or that it's in, that more and more trans men are starting to tell their stories and maybe not as visible as the trans sisters, but are, are becoming more visible and talking about their lives? Yes, I do see that. Um, and I think one of the wonderful things is that we've been having a number of retreats on the West Coast that have been wonderful spaces for transmasculine folks to connect at. And that's been a, a, a place of empowerment for, for folks. Um, but, yeah, I think there, there is more uh, visibility a little by little with transmasculine folks. But, you know, of course, in the larger, uh, you know, general uh, community or in the media, we're – not that visible. Uh, and I think it's true that many people do not understand the issues of transmasculine folks um, or even that recognize that we exist still. Mm-hmm. You know, and I know that, you know, because I, ta- I was also talking to someone who does, like, health services. And, like, they were talking about, you know, who their target audience were. And they said, of course, they said, well, g- gay, saint, uh, African-American men, 
and then they said trans women, and they were talking about all that, and I said, well, you know, and, and trans men, and they said, well, you know, there's not a lot of numbers or statistics and things out there, so we don't really know what services and things they need. This is part of what you do every day. And how do you find that organizations and those who, who figure programs and figure what they're going to do based on statistics, how are you able to, you know, by living authentically, you know, as you are, helping them to gather that or to open their mind to recognize that some of the things that you're thinking will only uh, impact gay men and trans women also are issues that affect trans men and to off expand the level of services. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's a great point. I mean, clearly trans masculine folks are under-researched in comparison to trans feminine folks. And often when we talk about trans health and the funding for trans health, it's often within the lens of HIV AIDS funding, which is a really, really important issue that has devastated our communities. Um, but, you know, so much of the focus is on trans feminine folks in HIV prevention, um, and yet we're seeing in some regions um, some uh, higher uh, representation of trans masculine folks in substance abuse treatment um, and trans masculine folks seroconverting um, to HIV positive status. And, uh, you know, I had uh, one community in Southern California ask, ask me to do a trans-masculine-specific training because they were HIV prevention providers and treatment providers who really did not have the familiarity with the population and really needed to understand what are the specific issues that are coming up for trans-masculine folks and HIV prevention needs. Um, and, you know, so that's one piece because, you know, HIV is a, an issue that is affecting trans-masculine communities. But, you know, when we talk about health care access and we talk about trans-health, mm-hmm. of course, there are many, many other issues that aren't necessarily getting the funding or getting the recognition and you know that's why it's important that we have more research on trans communities and um, I had the opportunity to work with Kaiser on a a large-scale research study that they've been doing to really look at long-term health outcomes for trans masculine or trans folks in general and you know so that's why I mean that's that's a really important work because we really need to understand what are the health needs and what are the health issues that are happening for folks and are we seeing people impacted in any particular way or certain trends that are coming up as far as uh, the health needs of trans folks and I think we don't or trans masculine folks we don't we don't have enough data uh, we don't have enough. I mean, I know anecdotally I hear things about what might be going on for folks, but we don't have enough clear data on, on what those specific issues are and the needs. But I think, you know, there's a there's sort of a myth that trans-masculine folks transition, they get male privilege, and everything's good, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and it's, and it's true. We're experiencing male privilege, many of us, but at the same time, um, you know, people have the traumas that they've experienced as female born individuals, as trans folks, um, and, you know, as people just trying to, struggling to survive, um, you know, with the high cost of living and, you know, just all the challenges of, of, of isolation, of lack of family support, of lack of acceptance in the workplace and in educational environments, um, and so on and so forth, and, and, you know, people are struggling to survive, but we don't hear enough about that. Well, and then, you know, you know if what, we do... Go ahead. That, 
No, I mean, if we hear about transmasculine folks, often we're hearing about young, white, uh, uh, transmasculine folks with some economic privilege. And, you know, the reality is, you know, that there are a lot of transmasculine folks of color that are really invisibilized in the media and in the conversation a lot of times. You know, I mean, that is so true because I know I have talked to, you know, and I'll say like, well, are you including trans, you know, men? You know, I've talked to trans activists and they go, oh, well, you know, it's almost like some, I've had people say to almost to the point like, well, you know, they don't need it. You know, most of them, they just sort of disappear. But then when you see people, the trans brothers who you see out there who are going through all of this, it's like, well, you know, (laughs) I'm out here. I'm trying, you know. But people assume, I mean, and maybe that's, you know, uh, a bad rap that that trans men have gotten is like, oh, well, they just like, I've got male privilege now and I'm just going to disappear and leave my life. And that's not (laughs) always true. I mean, you know, it is true. But it isn't always true. Yeah. I mean, I think you never stop being trans. And, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the challenges that we've experienced as female-born individuals are still with us. The, you know, the traumas that we've experienced, um, the ways that we've been subjugated, the ways we've been subjugated as transmasculine people. Because that still happens. Even if we might experience male privilege in some spheres, we also experience a lack of privilege in other spheres. And then, of course, the intersections of race around that. You know, for mm-hmm. folks who are transitioning to a white male presentation, that's one thing. But for folks of color, I mean, there are just a lot of, uh, of challenges that are coming up for folks and um, you know the wall there might be new privileges there are also ways in which people lose privilege with transition and that is not a conversation that you know many folks are really having or understanding and I think you know people think well uh, trans men don't have any issues and and that is really not the case people are struggling with mental health challenges and um, with just um, you know, challenges with family not accepting us or, mm-hmm. um, you, know, uh, you know, so many different ways in which, you know, people might not feel like they've really been able to fully be seen for who they are and be respected for who they are. And, you know, that impacts people's lives across the board. Mm-hmm. Do you ever feel, because, I mean, you really do live, I mean, right in the intersection because, and, and I know that you probably get it from a, do you ever feel, okay, because I know that often when people think of trans women, many they often they go to, um, well, some white, but often it's like the ones who are being oppressed and victimized are black and Latino. And often when they think of trans men, they might think of white trans men, and there are some black trans men, but you're Asian. And, you know, and I mean, and really... Often I, I think that sometimes when I think people of color, I immediately want to go to black and Latino. And in part by reading your book, it sort of reminded me that, no, people of color is big. <laughs> but the Asian community, I mean, is there, do you, have you found that there's a bigger API trans community than what people might think? And are they more closeted? Um, do you find that you being out there representing has allowed people to have a bigger voice? Well, um, (laughs) that's a lot of questions there. I think that, uh, (laughs) 
You know, and thank you for those questions because I think um, as trans masculine people in general, we experience invisibility as Asian and, you know, or Asian and Pacific Islander trans masculine people, we, we definitely experience invisibility. And yet I think like any community of folks, we have a range of expression. Uh, people who identify their gender in many different ways, people who are more out, people who are coming out, people who are um, living stealth, as in uh, they don't want folks to know that they're trans in their daily lives. Um, you know, there's a real range of, of what that might look like, just in, as in any other community. Um, I had the wonderful privilege of co-organizing the first Asian Pacific Islander Transmasculine Retreat, which took place in August of last year, 2017, and it was a wonderful experience to bring a group of folks together had, that had not come together on that scale and to really uh, get to know each other, talk about our issues, build community, share resources, find self-reflection in each other, build self-acceptance. And, you know, for some folks that was a real coming out process for them and after the retreat felt like they could really live their lives authentically. And that's just a beautiful thing to create community with folks and and build support for folks. Um, But, you know, I think, you know, when you think about, um, you know, the ways in which, um, you know, we're stereotyped as Asian folks and the gendering of, of, mm-hmm. uh, of race where, you know, we're supposed to be hyper-feminine and, you know, not masculine or we're emasculated. And as trans-masculine folks, we're also uh, emasculated in a certain way. And, you know, I think it's a, it, for us, we have to uh, work doubly to be recognized for our masculinity and uh, the authenticity of our identities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I, there's so many things about you that have like, you know, it's just a like, wow. I mean, I was also telling like this woman and she was saying how her son was coming out and it was like, she didn't know he was, he was finding his name and she was just like concerned about what name or would he come and discuss it with them. And I told him how, well, well Willie just said, I'm Willie. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> And just kept it moving from there. And how <laughs> yeah, I was nine years old. <laughs> I know, I know. That's what, you know. And her son, I said, so I said, so you know, so and another person I cry recommended by. I said, I said, so you know, let him find his name. He'll tell you, you know. And she was like, but, and she was thinking of like all these things, like with the family names and all like that. But you know, he'll pick the name that's right for him, and it will be okay. <laughs> and it was, and I, and so I went back to that and said, Willie said, you know, and he's just like. Never looked back. And she was like, I don't know if I can do all that. And I said, well, you know, it will come out all right. And, you know, um, the other, my other Willie-ism that I like was like when your book came out. And I remember being at Creating Change and talking with our mutual friend, Kyler, and him, him like sort of joking with you and ribbing you about, you know, here you are if you're, 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 jacket open and your chest out and how proud you are of yourself and you know and and him like sort of like that kind of ribbing you like like your your male model pose but i also <laughs> talked to some people um with carter brown at btac and he was saying how there were people who like at that it was the first time that they felt comfortable not wearing a shirt and being feeling good about their body, mm-hmm. you know, and 
and you did that. I mean, mm-hmm. when you when you took that bold stage, I said, and you came up with this picture for it. Did you have any like moments like well, maybe I should put a T-shirt on, or 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 was or were you just like, hey, I'm here, this mm-hmm. is me, I'm willing. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I'm just trying to be a badass trans person, you know. <laughs> you know, and, and I mean, you know, it, it, it's a for me, it's about being visibly trans and saying, you know, this is who I am. I mean, but you know, it's interesting. A lot of people, all kinds of people, have been very freaked out by that book cover. You know, I'm not doing it because I think I'm so hot or whatever. I'm doing it because I want to put it out there and say, yes, I'm trans. I'm Asian, I'm trans, I'm transmasculine, you know, I get to be male because I say I'm male, even if a world denies me that authenticity of my identity. And, you know, that's why I did it, because I wanted to be like, you know, yeah, what about it, you know? And that's what it's about for me. But it's interesting that, you know, I had one organization where I was doing a training and they said, you know, we can't have the nudity. And I was like, what nudity? (laughs) You know, <laughs> and I thought they were talking about another image in my slideshow that, you know, had a little bit of a reveal, but not exactly that much of a transmasculine person. But, it, you know, it was a transmasculine person's chest. And I thought, oh, is that, is that what they're talking about? What are they talking about? And they were an organization that did work with families who have children who are um, young children. And so then they realized, like, oh, you know, they had, uh, you know, work with uh, families with children from zero to five, and then they realized, well, they show images of uh, shirtless men holding the newborn babies because, you know, the, of course, the skin-to-skin contact is, is mm-hmm. part of that bonding and, you know, care for young uh, babies. And then they realized, oh, they do that. And I was like, what nudity? What nudity are they talking about? I was totally confused. And then I realized that they saw that as nudity because mm-hmm. I was trans. And so that's an interesting thing that happens, <laughs> that people kind of have that. And, um, and so, you know, <laughs> it's interesting, though. But, you know, I mean, also there are trans people who have been freaked out or weirded out by that cover, too. So it's, 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 it's interesting how people respond to that. And, you know, me, I'm just trying to, you know, I'm just putting it out there. I'm just kind of like, yeah, what about it? And, you know, that's why I did it. But, um, you know, I think people uh, have different responses to that. And, um, you know, it hasn't, it hasn't all been positive, you know, so that, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because, I mean, because I, I think it's a great cover, personally. I think you look great. And, um, <laughs> but to me, that's what comes out. It's like, you know, you're you, you're proud of you. You know, you're not like, you know, you're proud of your body, the body that you wanted. I mean, that, the body that yeah. was always on the inside. Yeah. And now you're able to be that person. And, I, and, I, and it was funny because, like I said, when I saw these comments like at BTAC where it was someone that was like how good it felt, how this felt, how good it felt to be someplace where he felt he could take his shirt off and be around people. I mean, okay, that's part of it too. I mean, I mean, I'm not going to, I mean, if you're, if you're a trans man, be proud of it. Don't still be in the closet of clothing. Yeah. Well, and that's the wonderful thing about transmasculine retreats and other trans spaces that give people an opportunity to take that shirt off that maybe they didn't, didn't, don't do it in other spaces. And that's a beautiful thing that, you know, people need more spaces where they can feel comfortable just being 
in their body, however their body is, wherever mm-hmm. they're at, whether or not they're medically transitioning or not. You know, because everybody's beautiful, trans is beautiful, you know, let's just experience that. But there's so many places in the world, you know, people can't really do that. Or a lot of times people mm-hmm. feel that they can't go swimming because they're trans or they can't do that kind of thing and, and you know, just be shirtless in the park. And, and so, you know, we need more spaces where we can do that. Well, that's one of the great one of the great parts in your book was because you like to swim and at that part when you got to the point where you didn't have to go through all the stealth business so that you could just swim. I mean, yeah, that's right. How liberating, yeah. how freeing. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I'm a swim junkie. You know, I'm there every day. And, you know, it's, and, um, you know, I think it was like, yeah, I'm a stealth trans Houdini in the men's locker room doing my sleight of hand trick mm-hmm. in this tiny little postage stamp of a locker room, you know, it's all this kind of sleight of hand. And, you know, I wanted to really articulate that experience of, um, you know, what it's like and sort of the internal world of a trans person uh, navigating mm-hmm. that space. Mm-hmm. But, you know, yeah, yeah I, I, I have the privilege now to be naked in the locker room and not have anybody, <laughs> look, look, you know, take a second look at me. And, you know, that's an incredible privilege. And that's about health care access um, and, mm-hmm. you know, being able to access transition-related surgery and then be able to do what I love and not have to have that burden um, you know, that, you know, burden of, 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 you know, concern in the locker room in the same way that I did before. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, Willie, we're going to take our first break here on Collections by Michelle Brown. And when we come back, we're going to talk about that voice of cultural competency. So we will be All right, right back. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. back with my guest today, Willie Wilkinson. He's a writer and public health consultant. Willie, one of the things that that on the the cover of your book, it says a voice for cultural competency. Um, In that title, what exactly did you want to convey to people who picked up your book that, you know, beyond this great memoir autobiography? Well, you know, um, I mean, what I wanted to do was to use the memoir genre as a cultural competency tool, to use the power of storytelling to contextualize the movement for transgender equality, and to really also give uh, people tools uh, for creating more uh, trans-affirming or LGBTQ-affirming services and systems. 
So, you know, when you think about cultural competency, and there's a lot of ways to look at it, and this is something I talk about in my trainings, you know, what does cultural competency mean to you? And a lot of people have different responses to that question. You know, it's really about recognizing, um, you know, where people are at, people's differences, learning about cultures and populations, but treating people as an individual. A lot of times people think of cultural competency as being specific to race and ethnicity only, and it is Mm -hmm. so important to recognize those issues in terms of race and ethnicity, but I think we also can look at culture in a much broader way as LGBTQ cultures, um, you know, trans culture specifically, disability culture, um, you know, where people live, um, you know, so many different things about their lives that, that you know, relates to culture. Um, and, you know, when you think about, well, what is cultural competency? To me, it refers to the ability to understand, communicate with, and effectively interact with many different popu- types of populations, diverse populations. Um, and it's about, it's about awareness, attitude, knowledge, skills, behaviors, and policies, procedures, and organizational systems, because I think it's about the interaction with folks, but it's also about, you know, how do we create affirming systems? Um, And how do we recognize that another human being's cultural framework is authentic to them, you know, and accept their perspective without question, judgment, or revision, you know, how do we manage our biases? Biases. How do we recognize them and manage them? And um, you know, so I work with training groups of some, you know, of, of many different types of training groups. You know, whether it's substance abuse treatment or mental health uh, providers, medical providers, um, you know, people who are working in the community in, in different ways and different services, or educational institutions, or helping workplaces, for instance, you know, navigating an employee's transition. You know, I'm really helping them understand the population, what's uh, the ways that people are impacted by. Uh, you know, impacted in, in, you know, throughout every sphere of their life, really, by discrimination, um, you know, what the legal and policy issues are that are impacting this community, and, and then really helping them look at, well, what are the practical issues in their setting that would be helpful to be more affirming? And are there any systemic issues that they really need to think about? Do they really need to be looking at their policies and, and uh, thinking about doing that differently? And also, do they understand the legal issues that we have the legal right to access services or any sphere of society in accordance with our gender identity, regardless mm-hmm. of what we look like, regardless of if we changed our legal gender. And so, you know, those are the kinds of things that I get into when I talk about it. And so I wrote the book because I really wanted to use the power of storytelling within the lens of a personal story, my own, but also the larger story of our communities um, to really articulate what these issues are so that hopefully folks could then go into their own setting and use that knowledge to transform their settings to be more affirming. Do you ever find, though, you know, because sometimes, I mean, that part is important, but then it's also important that people don't forget that we are also part of the community at large. I mean, sometimes people are so so fast to want to put us in that LGBTQ box, they, they forget that we're also part of the community. You're part of a community that you live in. You're part of a parenting community. Yeah. I mean, you're part of an API community. So there's yeah. all these other things. And yeah. how do you, you know, how do you help them to be aware of these things that are, are part of one part of our community, but not let them 
like only LGBTQ terms to not, you know, see us as that full person. Yeah, sometimes people forget that this is not the only thing going on for us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is just one aspect of our lives, right? And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think sometimes people assume that if someone is struggling around an issue or is accessing services, that it's because they're trans, it's because they're mm-hmm. queer, you know, and, mm-hmm. and it might be that it might have something to do with it, but sometimes it's not about that, and it's about other issues that are impacting folks' lives and uh, recognizing that full picture, right, where people are coming from culturally, um, you know, what people's socioeconomic status is or disability or health status or, you know, what where people live and what their access is in their uh, you know, in their environment their, and what the, what the political climate is where they live, um, you know, what resources that folks have, you know, there's so much that makes up a person's experience, you know, or the communities that they resonate with. Like, yes, of course, I'm a parent, so I have a parenting community. And, yes, I'm API. I have an API community. And, you know, we intersect with our communities in different ways. Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, I think, that's that's the thing is understanding the intersectionality, understanding the different ways that folks identify and um, resonate and what communities they engage in. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I think that, that that part is like so important because especially in these times when we have, I mean, it looks like we're turning back, you know, we have an administration mm. that looks like they want to turn back oh. to times that mm-hmm. we have to like really stand that strongly and say, you know, not only about being queer, members of the queer community, but saying like to the other part, you know, we're talking about our civil rights, we're talking about economic justice, we're talking about social justice. How has your work picked up since the 2016 elections and how has it changed? You know, I know that you're hearing all these things. How do you feel that there's a pushback or is there people, you find people who are wanting to, to learn how to, to be more inclusive and hold the line against this orange mist that's coming upon us? Yes, indeed. Oh, God, the world has changed so much. And I feel like my book is a kind of an artifact of an optimistic time (laughs) during the Mm -hmm, Obama years, mm -hmm. you know, when we got over 100 pieces of trans-affirming legislation passed. And, you know, it's it's such a different world now. And I think that, um, you know, the mental health of trans community, of trans folks has really been impacted because of the stress of discrimination. You know, of course, the anti-immigrant bias, the, the attacks mm-hmm. on uh, black folks, I mean, you know, and on down the line, right, the attacks on women, the attacks on everybody, right? And um, I think, you know, what I'm seeing is that people who work uh, in support uh, services, mental health providers, substance abuse prevention and treatment providers, and um, medical providers are seeing people really impacted by that level of stress that people mm-hmm. have in their daily lives, struggling to survive, and this ongoing attack. And so I see that um, there's a tremendous need for these services, for me to help folks understand the population and how they can be more effective in their work. And that, uh, you know, so people are saying, yes, we need this even more. And, you know, it's true, I've been doing this all along, and I have always, for a long time, had a high demand on, uh, you know, training uh, services, training and technical assistance. But I see that, you know, 
even more so people are saying this is so important that we really understand these issues because we really want to support the community and seeing how folks are at risk because of the ways that people are being oppressed in multiple ways, you know, multiple ways throughout society. And so I see that. I also see that, you know, this climate has emboldened people to be more visibly biased. And so mm. when I go into more conservative communities, I see that bias manifest more, um, that there continues to be this ongoing judgment uh, and fear of trans folks, uh, you know, just, you know, accessing the bathroom, which is this basic mm-hmm. human right that every, most people take for granted. Um, and there still continues to be this concern that, oh, if we give trans people the right to use the restroom, you know, isn't that going to give predators the right to go in and hurt people? You know, there's always those, those kind of misconceptions. It's like, no, no, we're not giving but you know, other people a right to go hurt people. We're, we're talking about mm-hmm. folks just being able to go to the facility like everybody else. Like, People get Mm -hmm. so concerned and and freaked out that it's somehow a safety issue to allow a trans person to use the bathroom. Well, people have been going to the bathroom all along, you know, with no incident. You know, we're Mm -hmm. just, um, you know, want folks to be able to pee in peace, right? You know, that's all we're talking about, you know? Mm -hmm. And, you know, without harassment and just being able to go, because some folks have to hold it all day long, you know, just can't even Mm -hmm. go at school or at work, you know? We're talking about basic, very basic human rights here. So, but I think there's, you know, continues to be that confusion and, you know, hatred and bias. And, and mm-hmm. I see that exhibited, uh, you know, a little bit more where people really feel that, um, you know, that I should, um, you know, I shouldn't just be talking about the rights of folks to have, uh, you know, equal access, that, you know, we should also give equal time to their view, which is actually mm-hmm very based in bias and discrimination, Um, you know, so, you know, or not being able to see folks as full human beings. Um, But I I mean, I also want to help them understand, you know, okay, well, what is this about really? And what is it that their fear is about? And, you know, so, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, that has, um, um, you know, there's certainly given, uh, you know, this, this political climate has given um, more space for, um, you know, negative attitudes and bias, for sure. Mm-hmm. Now, you have, I mean, you're out, you're a parent. You have been involved in your children's lives. You've been involved in their education, in their school, helping people do that. I, I, I have to believe that as we raise our families, that that's making an impact and a change in the communities around them. Do you see, I mean, do you still see that when you go into school? I mean, and do you, how, how does it affect kids as they see, you know, because kids are making, I mean, there's a, a trans child, there's a gay child born mm-hmm. every moment going mm-hmm. to school. And I think that, A, it's so important that you are there as a parent because, you know, I know they all think that we're out there on the cruise ships having parties, but you're a parent. <laughs> and, you know, yeah. and you're living a real life with the real same struggles as, you know, the, the straight family whose kid is in the classroom with yours. How does that impact them? How are those conversations going on in schools? And are you doing more work in, in schools? Mm, yeah, great question. You know, it's wonderful to see what's happening because uh, it used to be that the conversations were happening more on a high school level 
but not as much in the younger grades. And now I see that we have GSA's Gay Straight Alliance, um, uh, or gay, you know, uh, gay Straight Alliance Network, um, or sometimes people call it Gender and Sexuality Alliance. And mm-hmm. you know, they're in the schools, not just in the high schools, but in the middle schools too. And my son just graduated from, uh, just went through sixth grade. And wow. you know, it was a beautiful thing to sh- to go to middle school and see there were flyers for the Gay Straight Alliance all over the halls. And, you know, he felt like, well, you know, my, my mom's a lesbian, my dad's trans, I'm going to go as an ally and, and go to this. And I just thought, like, wow, this is great. You know, his friend's sister came out on the first day of class in seventh grade as pansexual. And I just thought, okay, that's what we're doing now, you know, in seventh mm-hmm. grade. And, you know, mm-hmm. young people are, are talking about this, um, you know, you know, in, in middle school, um, you know, talking about their, their identities, coming out as gay, as queer, as bi, as pansexual, as trans. And it's a beautiful thing to see. Um, you know, I have this old ass, you know, perspective of, wow, I wish that was going on when I was young, mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm. I was trying to do this all on my own. And, you know, to see that, you know, the communities are coming together to support young people in the schools, that elementary schools and the K through five level, you know, are, are definitely seeing young trans kids coming out. You know, they're there right there in kindergarten. And, you know, the teachers really have to get the tools to understand how to navigate working with the trans child. And when folks are coming from the heart, it is no big deal. You know, the mm-hmm. kids understand, you know, it's just working through any biases or fears that the adults have. But a lot of times the kids are like, oh, yeah, that's how we know this person to be. And they get it. And, you know, they don't really trip in the way that, you know, often the adults are the ones that do it. So, yes, I do trainings and helping people really understand the issue and navigate supporting a child. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's really about, um, you know, being affirming or gender neutral in the way they talk to class, you know, instead of boys line up here and girls line up here, you know, how can people think about not being as gendered in the classroom, um, you know, and, and also, you know, how can they deal with any pushback they might have from a community that doesn't understand, uh, particularly if there's a trans child in school, you know, but I, you know, it, it really depends. And I've been fortunate that I've been in a community that has been really supportive of me because because, you know, I didn't medically transition until my oldest child was in kindergarten. And mm-hmm. um, I was navigating, you know, what we call now a, non, a very non-binary identity and presentation for many years. Though we didn't call it that then. There wasn't a lot of space for it then or a lot of understanding for it then. Um, and, you know, it wasn't until, uh, you know, later in life that I did decide to pursue medical transition. And the community of parents, um, that uh, I was in at the time was just so incredibly supportive. And, well, you know, I wrote about that in the book, and I was just, my mm-hmm. mind was blown. I did not see that coming. So that's been a beautiful thing, and I've been very fortunate in the Bay Area to have that. I know other folks are not. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, I have also, I've been talking to some people who have done, like, oral histories and that. And, you know, I'm like you. Sometimes I look at, you know, I'm like, wow. I wish I had been a kid now. I mean, it's so, there's ways that, you know, you think about a lot of the trauma and stress and mm. and living unauthentically and issues that, you know, we had to work through because we couldn't. But there are those who say, you know, who are historians and doing that, who are saying that how important it is to capture these stories about how it was so that 
they could understand, today's kids could understand what people went through. So where do you stand on that? How do you feel the history of particularly the trans community needs to be saved, needs to be told, needs to be not forgotten as we move forward to a point where we're not, you know, either you're a boy or you're a girl where you can find yourself. Oh, absolutely. I think history is so important, and I am often called and now that I am officially old and <laughs> I am, I am, I'm called upon as an elder to, um, you know, to really talk about the history. Um, I think it's hard for young people to imagine a world before the Internet, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. before we could easily find information, you know, where people looked for it in some dusty book and were very scared to go to the library and try to find something, and, and it, then you couldn't really find it anyway. You know, it was hard to find the information. It was hard to find community. Um, you know, it was a whole other world, and I think, you know, people are looking for that. I find that in my own API community, um, that many young people are wanting their, their history. In fact, recently I was interviewed by NBC Asian America where they were doing a piece. I don't know if you got to see this. They did a, a series on API queer issues, and they wanted to really look at, you know, what is the history uh, of us as a trans, API transmasculine community because, you know, in 1987 I was co-organizing the first Asian and Pacific Islander lesbian retreat, and then 30 years mm-hmm. later in 2017 co-organizing <laughs> Uh, the first API transmasculine retreat, which I never could have imagined, you know, back in the 80s that I'd be doing or that we would have the community and the space and, you know, the ability to really just, you know, articulate our identities and, um, you know, have space for our our identities and and create communities around that. And so, you know, I I think, um, yeah, it's a really, really important thing that we document uh, our history and that we tell our stories it's so important, I think, and young people are looking for that. Mm-hmm. And so when you're, now that, now that you're, you know, what is it, the Obi-Wan, <laughs> the Obi-Wan of the API community, and they come to you, Elder, Elder Wilkinson, and they say, <laughs> okay. You know what, I'm where, still clinging desperately to my youth, though. <laughs> okay, all right. And, and, and you know what, I'm right there with you. What yeah. You, I mean, what is... What's forward? I mean, how do we move forward, especially, you know, when we see that there's these threats against our community and you have these young kids, these queer kids who are unapologetic and they're just doing it and we know what's in there. How do you keep from wanting to be like overprotective or, you know, encouraging them but not, but at the same time, being worried about what the pushback can be. And what do you say to them when they say, you know, we want to take it to the street, you know, we want to have the GSA, we want to do this, we want to push it. Do you caution them or how do you encourage them to move forward? Oh, I think it's a beautiful thing that folks are unapologetic and taking it to the streets. I -hmm. think it's wonderful that people feel that they can do that. And, you know, it may be at risk for them to do that, but they're doing it anyway. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I think, 
it, it, it depends on what their situation is. Um, you know, in some states we really do have strong legal protections, but not as much in other states. And, you know, I wouldn't want anyone to lose their job over this. And consequences do happen for folks to really come out. But I think that, you know, it's so important for people to be able to feel like they can live out loud and be authentic. Because when you can't and you have to shrink into a little you know, tiny little ball because you can't be yourself, well, that is so damaging on the psyche. Mm -hmm. And so, we know, we really have to be able to be ourselves. So I just say, go ahead. You know, you go ahead and do that. I'm so proud of them. I'm so proud of young people who can just be who they need to be, who are articulating, you know, this is who I am, what about it, this is, you know, and they're pushing their parents and their uh, teachers and their workplaces and everybody around them to get with it. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I feel like, you know, the more the merrier, the more folks that we have out there doing that, the more visible we are, um, it, you know, the better. And I think it's a beautiful thing that there's so much more space to have complex gender identity and expression, that people are articulating their gender in all kinds of ways and not feeling as much that they have to be a particular way to fit into society. Um, You know, society needs to open up and get with that rather than, you know, folks having to, you know, okay, now you're trans, well, you must transition into this neat little package that, you know, society accepts. Well, you know, for some folks, maybe that's who they are and that's who they want to be, but not everybody's like that, and we need to create more space for folks Mm -hmm. to be gender fabulous in whatever form that is, you know, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. and, you know, if that means that, you know, they're visibly trans or they're visibly queer, you know, go ahead. I understand, though, what you're saying in terms of, um, you know, being worried for folks, you know, I want folks to be safe. I want folks to be careful, Um, you know, but, you know, it's like we got We got to do that and we got to find our ways to be ourselves and also be careful, but, you know, without, hopefully without, you know, losing our authenticity in the process, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, you talked about how, and, and really, I sometimes I pinch myself. Well, I was looking at your book, and, you know, it was written in, in a time that I don't know, it might be a long time before we see a period like that again. And one of the people who wrote on the back of your book was, you know, President Obama's Commission on White House Fellowships, you know, um, you know, we don't, they didn't even acknowledge Pride Month. Mm. What do you see, if you were to write this book, or do you see yourself writing another book that now that the bubble, well, it's not really burst. I mean, but, it, but, but now that that reality has moved and we're dealing with a different reality, how would you frame a book now? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I will say, you know, when you say that, it's funny because it sounds like, oh, you know, we're talking about so long ago. You know, I published this book at the end of 2015, which is mm-hmm. a little less than three years ago. And, <laughs> yeah, and you know, and I didn't see this coming at all. You know, I didn't, mm-hmm. I didn't really mm-hmm. see, you know, to me, I thought this was the new normal. You know, my friends and colleagues are getting invited to the White House 
and on a regular basis. And, you know, we're having these conversations and we're being treated as full human beings and we're, you know, being respected for the work we're doing and it's being recognized as an important civil rights issue and, you know, LGBTQ issues and trans issues specifically. And, you know, that's a beautiful thing. And then it's like, what? <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. A few, just a few years later, living under this madness and, um, you know, just constant, constant attack on a daily basis. Um, You know, it's, I'm just hoping, you know, I am an optimistic person and I'm just hoping that this, getting this bad will then propel us back to another place. But, you know, I really don't know. We have a lot of, of, of possibly long-term struggles ahead of us. Um, So, you know, it's a good question as to, you know, what that looks like. You know, I'm not exactly sure what the next book is. I've also found that, you know, people don't read. (laughs) People don't read anymore. You know, I wonder if maybe that's not the right medium for me. Uh, And yet Mm -hmm. I'm a writer. That's what I love and, Mm -hmm. and do. So, you know, I think there's also questions about how do we communicate uh, you know about these issues too. What's the best medium in this day and age? Um, but I think um, you know, um, you know, part of it is I think coming back to your question too about history. You know, I feel like I might need to write something about that to really fill in the gaps in our histories of you know whether it's API queer and trans history or um, you know the larger history of our movements. Um, you know, I come from the lesbian of color movement of the 80s, and, you know, that was an incredible time, you know, and we were fighting against, you know, such um, horrible policies on a federal level as well at that time and a lack of visibility and understanding of our issues. So, um, you know, I, I think what's interesting about this political time is that, you know, whereas we had the marriage equality movement, uh, you know, during those uh, years prior, you know, in the Obama years, you know, now we have this trans-military ban to fight. And so some of my friends and colleagues are working on that. And, you know, mm-hmm. in a way that is kind of like our marriage in that, you know, marriage equality kind of humanized, definitely humanized people in same-sex relationships. And I think the trans-military ban is now humanizing trans folks. And so we need we need more opportunities to humanize our experience and to be seen, you know, to be seen as full human beings and, and the realities of, of our life struggles. Mm. So I think mm-hmm. that's an important movement now. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I'm going to take another quick break here. And then I have a, a few last questions to go over with you, Willie. So All right, I'll be then. right back. Mm-hmm. Okay. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode.
I'm back speaking with Willie Wilkinson. You know, Willie, how, you know, we, there's a lot of things when you think about, you know, there is the ban in the military, but do you see, as you're talking about, you know, cultural competency, you're talking about the experiences of being trans, of being API, there's also these other things that are going on, like um, these, the Me Too movement. There's also um, the, the ban on people seeking asylum. And we know that all, our community are people who are seeking asylum as well, coming from other countries, thinking that they can come here to escape. I mean, how many times on Transgender Day of Remembrance, as you listen to that list of names, many of them are not in this country. And there are people who are coming here seeking asylum. We know yes. that, that, that members of the trans community are victims of domestic abuse and, and general abuse. How do you, do you have that part of the conversation as you're out talking about, you know, the cultural competency, the cultural awareness of our trans community and of our needs? Other than, you know, because many people think, oh, well, you know, all right, they can't serve in the military and they need to get hormones, but it's bigger than that. Do you have those conversations while you're out there? Oh, absolutely. Oh, God. I mean, yes, I think, you know, you really are dialing into the uh, um, the level of harassment, abuse, and, and, and violence that, that trans communities are experiencing, especially communities of color, um, and the police harassment, the, the presumption of criminality, uh, you know, for for particularly trans women of color, uh, you know, just um, talking about those intersections and the issues of undocu queers, you know, that mm -hmm. um, people being criminalized um, as undocumented folks, as folks seeking asylum, as um, uh, migrants, as people who are queer within those communities and being mistreated in detention, uh, you know, just horrible, horrible um, realities there for, you know, trans women being denied uh, their medication. Uh, I mean, and there's been incidents of folks dying in detention because they've been de denied their HIV medication. Um, you know, just horrible situations that are, are happening for folks. Um, so absolutely, I think, you know, any conversation about trans experience is really intersectional and looking at the, you know, what's happening for folks of color and the, the different challenges that people are experiencing, you know, whether it's intimate violence or um, state-sanctioned violence. Mm -hmm. Now, I know you're out there in California and people think that California is like, you know, the cool place. But, I mean, I, <laughs> I often think, too, that, you know, if you're a person of color and if you're queer, I mean, that sometimes can put a target on your back. And I know that there are a lot of people in California who are doing that. Do you see that? I mean, is it, I mean, is it the land of milk and honey that so many people think, if I could just get to California, everything would be great? Or are there cautionary tales about being queer and what you might think is the land of milk and honey? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, you know, nothing's perfect. And I think, you know, there is this idea that, you know, we have it all going on here. I think there are wonderful people, there are wonderful progressive communities. Um, but there's also definitely um, a lot of conservative uh, right-wing folks in California as well. 
And so though we might be seen as, you know, being so progressive, there are certainly conservative forces that we are fighting in California. Um, I think, you know, a lot of times people are fleeing persecution in other parts of the country, and they think, well, if I can just go to San Francisco, I can come out and be myself. But then you get here and you see that the cost of living is outrageous. This is the most expensive place to live in the U.S. now, and that's really challenging. Uh, and that impacts people in so many ways in terms of, um, you know, the choices that people have to make or, uh, you know, sometimes people are finding that they have to move back to where they came from because it's just such a struggle to survive. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I think there's, there's those challenges is that, you know, the homelessness, you know, there's, you know, I mean, when you look at the 2.5 million homeless youth in the U.S., you know, 40% are LGBTQ, uh, and many of those folks are trans, gender nonconforming folks, you know. And so, you know, it, it is definitely challenges. There's definitely challenges living out here, in, particularly in the San Francisco Bay Area, in the high cost of living. Um, you know, that's my highest stressor, you know, is supporting, mm-hmm. you know, five folks in, in the Bay Area is really, really challenging. And so, you know, I, I, it's, um, you know, that there's that. Um, you know, I think, you know, we need to transform our communities wherever we are if we can. But I understand that that's not something everyone can do. It's hard. It's hard when you're the only one in your community. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, there's, there's challenges wherever folks are. Um, but, you know, I mean, yes, you know, come to California if you want to do that. I mean, absolutely, if folks want to do that, I think there, there, there are wonderful support systems, but it is very, very challenging to survive. The cost of living is just beyond imagination, uh, you know, in San Francisco. It used to be that you could roll up and you could get a cheap place to rent, you know, and you could work in a cafe part-time not like, and be an artist, you know, and not like that anymore, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Well, Willie, um, if people want to contact you, um, learn about what you're doing, um, how, what's the best way for them to reach you? Well, my website, WillieWilkinson.com, uh, has my contact informa- information, W-I-L-L-Y-W-I-L-K-I-N-S-O-N, WillieWilkinson.com. And then, you know, so, yeah, I mean, the contact info is there. Um, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm not a great social media person, but I'm on there a little bit. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, my book is called Born on the Edge of Race and Gender, A Voice for Cultural Competency. Um, so that's available on Amazon and Kindle and other uh, uh, e-book uh, avenues. Um, but, yeah, so th- that's, those are the ways that folks can, can reach me. Um, you know, thank you so much for inviting me to be on your show. I think you just do such incredible work, and I think you ask great questions. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, Michelle. Well, you know, uh, Creating Change is going to be in Detroit in 2019. I'm just putting it out there. It'd be great oh, to see you. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. We'll get to know, yeah. yeah. It would be great to see you again. Well, Willie, um, I wish you all the best, the best to you and your family. Keep doing what you're doing. And um, I will be you're talking the to you in the, in the near future. You know, we're just going to have to find time to, to make time just to sort of chat from time to time. That's right. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Great to speak with you, Michelle. Okay. And um, thank you again. You have a good day. you the same. Okay. Bye-bye. 
I want to thank today's guest, Willie Wilkinson, author of Born on the Edge of Race and Gender, A Voice for Cultural Competency. You can listen to this or past episodes of the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Be sure and like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or topic for a future show. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening.